The words that I would like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Leviticus. We'll be looking at chapters 21 through 23. Leviticus 21. Before we look at this text, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's because of the words that we just sung that we come to hear your word. Because our hearts are so prone to wander. And we're tired of wandering. And so I pray that you would use your word to plant our hearts cause us to be steadfast, immovable, that we might abound in the work of the Lord and move forward in life with greater and greater confidence and and clinging less and less to the things of this life. And Lord, for that to happen, it, it cannot happen on our own strength. It has to be a work of you. And so we come now and and plead Literally, we plead that you would open our eyes to to behold the wonders of your word. That we might be more transformed and more confident and more courageous in light of the work that you've accomplished. We ask these things on the basis of what Christ has done for us. Amen. You all know the well-known story of Cinderella, how she lost her glass slipper and the prince found it and he picked it up and he wanted to to find who it belonged to. And so he went throughout the land seeking the one who lost her slipper. And he eventually came to her house and He presented it to her stepmother and her stepsisters and it didn't fit. And then finally he presented it to her and it fit. And then they lived happily ever after. He discovered his girl. But what would you think if that story ended just after Cinderella tried on the slipper? That is, that... Really what the prince wanted was he just wanted to discover who owned the slipper and he found her. The case was solved. And he returned her slipper to her and then she went back to her life and he went back to his life. I could, I could, I could almost guarantee if you were to tell the story of Cinderella to your daughter and you just stopped there, she would get angry. And she'd say, no. No, that's not how it ends. There's, there's much more to the story. She would think it's a horrible ending. Because the story is not about the slipper. It's about the prince. Why would she care about a simple slipper when she, who was an abused and neglected orphan, has the chance to marry the prince of the entire kingdom. Well, I believe that many people's understanding of Christianity is is like this shortened story of Cinderella. 
That is, they, they recognize the initial blessings of being a Christian, but they're so focused on those initial blessings that they actually miss that there is a greater end to God's plan of redemption. There's more to come. And in fact, that's the real story. That's the happy ending. And I say that because it's a common assumption that becoming a Christian will improve a person's life and bring greater temporal blessings. But in reality, such hopes are really just like glass slippers. True, those, those blessings may come. But what happens when the slipper breaks? When those expectations are not realized? When they lose their job unexpectedly? When their family members die? When they're diagnosed with cancer? Or when they're scorned or they're mocked by their friends because they actually take the Bible literally. The real hope of the gospel is not an improved life. And our failure to truly grasp this, I think, is why we are so easily emotionally crushed. Why even though we are saved... We struggle so much with joylessness, with anxiety, with self-pity, with selfishness, or the fear of man. We're we're anxious about what other people think of us, and, and we struggle with cowardice. I believe that the antidote for these struggles is actually found in us having a greater understanding of God's plan of redemption. That we would realize... There is way more to come. There's way more to our salvation to come. And that is actually what is laid out for us here in these three chapters of Leviticus 21, 22, and 23. As you might recall, God ultimately plans with Israel to make a kingdom of priests. He said this in Exodus 19.6, a kingdom of holy priests. And actually what you see in chapter 21 is the degree of holiness to which he wants those priests to live. The degree of holiness that his priests must have. And then chapter 22 describes the degree of holiness that the priests' offerings must have. And then in chapter 23... That depicts God's ultimate plan to bring that holiness about. God wants to create a kingdom of holy priests. This is how holy the priests need to be, chapter 21. They need to offer up holy sacrifices, chapter 22. And then how is that going to happen? Chapter 23. So that's where we're going with God's grand plan. Well, let's begin by looking at Leviticus 21. Now, after coming this far in our study of Leviticus, the fact that the priests need to be holy probably comes as no surprise. But what might be surprising, as we'll see in chapter 21, is the degree of holiness that those priests are required to have. And this is seen in regard to mourning, 
marriage and physical defects. They were also responsible to make sure God's offerings were holy. That's chapter 22. And we're going to take basically chapter 21 and 22 together because I'm going to say very little about 22 because I think really the main point is summarized in chapter 21. So it kind of creates a unit, as you'll see. Let's look at the, the priest's requirements for mourning, verses 1 through 6. They explain that the priests were only allowed to mourn for the deaths of their closest family members. And the prohibitions that are listed in uh, verse 5, they shall not make any baldness on their heads, shave off the edges of their beards, or make any cuts of their flesh. Those are really just uh, expressions of mourning in that culture. And God's saying, you cannot mourn this way. And the only people you can mourn for are your family members, your closest family members, in fact. And if you drop down to verse 10, you'll notice that the standards for the high priest were even higher. He could not mourn in any way. He couldn't even uncover his head or tear his clothes, which would have been like the first thing one would do. He couldn't even approach a dead person taking part in a funeral. That's what it's referring to. Even if it was for his father or his mother. And the reason for these prohibitions is that death defiles. And that mourning is completely out of place for a person who is serving in the presence of God. To mourn while in the presence of God, even near the presence of God, would be like standing next to a stream of cool, crisp, clear mountain water and complaining of thirst. Being a priest also limited their marriage options. We see in verse 7 and 8 that the priest could not marry a prostitute or a divorcee. The high priest, verse 13, could only take a virgin wife. And this was because the priesthood was hereditary. A defiled marriage would result in defiled offspring. And the point, again, that, that, that God is trying to communicate here is that sin is not just a label for bad things that people do. Sin is a force. It, it spreads like gangrene. It spreads like mildew. It has ongoing effects, even through generations. Again, the point being, God cannot dwell with the effects of death, or with the effects of impurity. He's holy. That's how holy he is. He, those people cannot have even touched death or be touched by any kind of sexual impurity. There's priests. Nor can God dwell even with the effects of sin. Thus the prohibition for priests with physical defects. Notice verse 21. No man among the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect, is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire, since he has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the food of his God. Again, this just emphasizes the reality that God cannot dwell even in the effects of sin. His priests had to look just as he had created them. Whole. And this is also 
just to jump to chapter 22, this is also why the animals could not, that would be offered up on the altar could not have any blemish either. They could not have any defects because as they were being burnt up on the altar, they were in effect going into the presence of God in the form of smoke. And therefore they had to be without defect. And that's essentially the point of chapter 22. They too needed to be free from the obvious effects of sin. So going back to the priests, though. Upon hearing these really incredibly high standards of holiness, one naturally would ask, but a physical defect isn't the priest's fault. Neither is being born to parents who might have had some sexual impurity. Nor is it their fault that their family members die. Why is God punishing the priests because of something they had no control over? Why should they be kept from serving Him for things that are completely outside of His control? Their control. Well, I think first of all, we have to recognize that God isn't punishing these priests. He's actually protecting them. For if they were to come into his presence and they happened to be defiled with a deformity or because they had sexually impure parents or because they had been close to death, a dead person, they would be consumed because of that defilement. So this is just a natural law. God is holy and any sort of defilement in his presence will result in that defiled person being consumed. Even if that's not what God wants. That's not what God wants. That's what he says, don't do it. Just like I would say to my son, who's one year old, Jeremiah, don't touch the wood stove. Because if he touches the wood stove, he's going to get burned. Whether I like it or not. My desire, my love for Jeremiah is not going to prevent him from getting burned if he touches the stove. So I say, no. It's a natural law. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you'll get burnt. God is saying, if you come into my presence with defilement, you will be consumed. So this, this, this says nothing about God's heart or how he sees the priest's personal value. Because throughout the Bible, God goes out of his way to show his compassion and his mercy and his love for those who bear the effects of sin, for the crippled, for the lime, for, 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 sorry, for the blind and for the lame. So we need to recognize that these prohibitions are not a statement about God's heart, but rather they're a statement about God's nature. He loves these priests. Maybe all the more because of their defects. But if they were to come into his presence, they would die. Do you see this massive tension between the love and compassion that God has, as well as this extreme high standard of holiness? The, the tension that exists there. He wants them to come into his presence. That's why he created the tabernacle. That's why he set them apart to be priests. He wants them to come to him, but they can't if they're defiled. 
And that's, what's, that's what we're supposed to realize as we read chapter 21. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to think, good night. That standard is so high. Who could meet it? With these prohibitions, God is showing His people that their problem is not just moral. It's physical as well. They didn't just need forgiveness. His priests, ultimately, they need new bodies. Because they will continue to dwell in a land and a world that, that, are, that is corrupted by the effects of sin. And not just that, they, they need to be freed from all the effects of sin. If they're to serve him as a kingdom of priests. You see, a greater salvation is absolutely necessary than what the tabernacle was providing. That's what this chapter is to communicate. Yes, the Israelite priests in chapter 21, they needed to have that standard. But if you really get what that standard is really pointing to, you realize so much more. Because... If this is the high standard of holiness for God's priests and God's offerings, it serves as like a a massive blinking neon light pointing to Christ on the pages of Leviticus. Because only Christ was a perfectly holy priest. Chapter 21. And only He was a perfectly holy sacrifice that could sufficiently bring about the transformation that Israel needed. He fulfilled the requirements of both of these chapters. He alone was without sin, and therefore he could come directly into the presence of God after he died. The true Holy of Holies. Moreover, he alone could serve as the perfect sacrifice on man's behalf in order to secure the holiness his people needed. Because the blood of bulls and goats, though they could temporarily cover sin, they could not bring about the perfect atonement that was needed or this greater need of complete transformation. You see that? Something, if, if, if we humans are ever going to actually be able to exist in the complete, pure, perfect presence of God on this earth, we need to be transformed. We need to be, this, this whole world needs to be transformed from the effects of sin, lest we be consumed. So having demonstrated the immense need for a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice, which could only be Jesus, the author then zooms out to give us a picture of his great plan. How will God bring about This kingdom of priests. If this is God's standard of holiness, how is he going to bring it about? How is he going to make Israel to be a kingdom of priests to this standard? Well, this is demonstrated in the seven holy days of Israel's calendar. Chapter 23. Notice... Verse 3, we'll begin at the first holy day that God established. And it's the one that came every week. The one we're most familiar with. For six days, work may be done, but on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest. A holy convocation. 
So every seventh day of the week in Israel's calendar, they would be required to rest. And, and this was really reflective of the fact that God, after he had created everything in six days, he rested. He rested and he wanted his people to rest also in that world that he would created in the Garden of Eden. God had created Eden ultimately to be a place of rest where his people, his creatures would dwell in his presence and rest. But sin destroyed that garden of rest. And so it was when God brought his people out of Egypt, when he redeemed Israel, he promised that he was going to bring them to a place of rest. In a land, the land of Canaan. And as you might be recalling in our scripture reading today, the author of Hebrews says that Israel never actually got to experience that rest. Yes, they went into the land of Canaan, but he says, but Joshua never provided that rest. They never achieved the rest even after they entered the land of Canaan. So if you look at Hebrews 4, verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The rest is still to come, is the point. This rest was never experienced. This Edenic Edenic rest, the rest that God had ultimately designed for this kingdom of priests, is still in the future. And so then, as we look at the other holy days, the seven holy days that follow lay out God's plan to bring about that permanent rest for his people to make them a kingdom of holy priests. So let's look next at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the first holy day on Israel's calendar was Passover, and this was celebrated on the first month of the 14th day. And this was immediately followed on the next day with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as many of you know, the Passover very clearly commemorated Israel's redemption from Egypt. God had passed over them as he poured out his wrath upon the Egyptians. He passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, upon their doorposts. They were passed over. The the wrath of God passed over them because of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. And of course, this was ultimately pointing to the great Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Remember when John the Baptist pointed to his disciples, pointed out to his disciples, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what he was saying. This is the Passover lamb. Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. So Christ ultimately fulfilled what the Passover was pointing towards. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread... In that feast, the Israelites were required to remove all the leaven from their dwelling places. And they knew this was symbolic of their need to pursue holiness. The, the leaven represented sin and its, its permeating effects. And so it's kind of a reminder of having been called out of Egypt, you need to pursue a life of holiness. That's what this, this feast reminded them of. And just like in Leviticus... The, stand, the call to holiness comes after the atonement. Right? The unleavened bread comes after the Passover lamb. Chapter, seven, chapter 17 through 
27, the holiness code of Leviticus come after the day of atonement. That's that's very purposeful. The point is, it's by means of atonement that holiness gets accomplished. You don't want to switch those around. We cannot bring about our own holiness. But holiness is the necessary response to one who has been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That's the point. So these two holy days, God was pointing forward to the atoning work that would be accomplished by Christ on the cross. And that sacrifice is what brings about our atonement. It purges us of our sin. It leads us into a life of holiness. Well, what about the Feast of First Fruits? That was the next holy day in Israel's calendar. And notice that it was celebrated the day after the Sabbath of the Passover. That is, the Sunday following the Passover, this feast was celebrated. Chapter 23, verse 11. Now, what this feast was, was really, it was a, it was a celebratory feast of the harvest. So, thus, first fruits. Israel would bring in the very first sheaf of grain that they reaped from their crops. And they would bring it to the tabernacle as an acknowledgement that this feast, or sorry, this, this harvest was something that God had accomplished. This was a gift of God, and so they were giving back God's gift to Him. They were acknowledging it was a fruit of grace. But being that it was first fruits, notice, it was also demonstrating confidence in more to come. These are just the first fruits of the harvest. Faith that there would be a harvest of more. Well, I mentioned that the calendar, again, was a roadmap of, of Israel's redemption. So, how does this feast fit in? Remember, it was celebrated the Sunday after the Passover. What significant event happened the Sunday after the Passover when the real, true, perfect Lamb of God was sacrificed? Jesus rose from the dead. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Notice verse 20. And notice Paul's words. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. When Paul came to write this grand explanation of the resurrection, he chose to use the word first fruits to describe that day. To describe Christ, essentially. Why does Paul describe Jesus as the first fruits or those asleep? Because it was his rising from the dead on Easter, first of all, that was accomplished completely by God's grace. Israel did nothing. In fact, I mean, only in a negative way did they bring it about, right? They didn't bring about their own salvation, it was all God's grace. And secondly, Christ being raised from the dead stands as I promise that there is more to come. He is just the beginning. 
Jesus the fruits, first fruits of an even greater harvest. When all who are in him, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, all who are in him, when he returns, they too will rise from the dead on that great day of harvest. More on that to come. First, though, let's go to the Feast of Weeks. This next holy day was the Feast of Weeks. It's also more familiarly known as Pentecost. And it was celebrated 50 days after the first fruits. And it, it marked the end of the harvest season. First fruits marked the beginning of the harvest season, Feast of Weeks, the end. And during this feast, the Israelites would bring in the abundance of their harvest as a reflection of God's generosity. As God had been generous to them, they wanted to generally give to the needy. And so there would be an abundance of harvest even given, more than what was given at the first fruits. And it was specifically for the needy. And thus there is this addendum in verse 22, chapter 23, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am your God. So you might recall that this was actually the reason why Ruth was able to glean from Boaz's field. Because she was a stranger, a pilgrim in that land. And God provided for Ruth through this very law. Another interesting element from this feast is seen in verse 17. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of a fine flour. Notice the next phrase. Baked with leaven. Why? Why in the world is God having leavened bread bring, being brought to him? What's the point? Well, what happened on Pentecost? Fifty days after Christ rose from the dead. Did you know the Spirit was poured out? And the disciples... Began to do what? Speak in foreign tongues. Foreign languages. Why was that? So that unclean people, Gentiles, full of leaven, might hear the gospel and be also invited into the presence of God. And notice this more. Just as the first fruits eventually turned into loaves of bread, so they used those first fruits for, they baked bread, Christ's death and resurrection produce the body of Christ, which is represented by bread. Right? Just as the first fruits eventually turned into loaves of bread, Christ's death and resurrection produces the body of Christ. It produces the church on Pentecost. The first fruits produces the church. And think more. more with Pentecost, remember what happened beyond just the speaking in tongues, the speaking in foreign languages. In Acts chapter 2, how did it, these New believers demonstrate their faith in God. 
Go ahead and flip there. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Just what the Feast of Weeks was meant to have Israel do. It was an expression of generosity. And and these, these Jews get it. These Jews were saved on the day of Pentecost. They get it. If now God... 50 days later has poured out his his spirit upon the church. We need to respond like he commanded us to at Pentecost and be generous. And so we've seen that the Passover and unleavened bread was fulfilled through the death of Christ. And then we see that first fruits was fulfilled through the resurrection of Christ, which 50 days later The Feast of Weeks was fulfilled in the establishment of a church that combined both Jew and Gentile as his body. Which brings us to the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets was celebrated on the first day of the seventh month. And it really signaled a time of awareness. The Day of Atonement is upon you. In other words which would be celebrated nine days later. And if you, if you look at Numbers chapter 10, it goes into a, a pretty extensive description of the trumpets that God wanted Israel to build and fashion. And, and we're told in Numbers 10 that the trumpets were to serve a few purposes. One was a signal for assembly. The trumpets are blown. It was, was a call to come together for some purpose. They also served as an alarm Warning, 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 something bad's about to happen. And they also served as a reminder that if they were attacked by their enemies and they heard the trumpet being blown, that would be a reminder to them that God would fight for them and would protect them and keep Israel safe from all of her enemies. So how does this feast figure into God's grand plan of redemption? Well, again... Trumpets in the New Testament signal God's final day of judgment. Matthew 24, verse 30, Jesus says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And trumpets are particularly highlighted in the book of Revelation. In the trumpet judgments, Revelation 8 and 9, that mark the beginning of God's wrath being poured upon the earth. And so these trumpets are being blown in Revelation as a warning to Israel. Wrath is coming. Beware. Alert yourself. But we also noted that they were blown the first day of the seventh month because they were to signal that nine days later the Day of Atonement was going to happen. And that, of course, is the next day that is on Israel's calendar and the most important, 
the Day of Atonement. And as you recall, this was the one day year when the high priest would enter the veil of the Holy of Holies. And it was the day that all Israel would be cleansed from her sin. And the part that the Israelites were to play was that they were to rest and that they were to humble themselves or afflict themselves. In fact, if you look at verses 26 to 32, notice how often that phrase is repeated. Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself. Rest. Well, how does the Day of Atonement fit in with God's grand plan of redemption? It wasn't, wasn't the Day of Atonement accomplished when Christ died? I mean, wasn't that what it was pointing to? Yes, but not completely. Because you'll recall that the purpose of the Day of Atonement was to purify Israel. The Day of Atonement wasn't for the Gentile nations. At least not immediately. It was for Israel. So Israel really is the focus of the Day of Atonement. But we know from the New Testament and that it will not be until the very end of this age that Israel experiences full atonement and recognizes a Redeemer. Flip in your Bibles to Romans eleven twenty five. This was a massive issue for Paul in his mind and what drove him and was central. That's why he spends so much time talking about it in the book of Romans. This issue, the salvation of Israel, was, was huge on Paul's heart. That's what he, it's why he served. Notice Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is, this is still to come. This is still in the future when all Israel will experience the full atonement that God had provided for them. Also, turn in uh, your, book, your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12 describes, it's a, it's a book of prophecy, and it describes what is going to happen in the last days. Zechariah chapter 12, notice what 12.10 says. It speaks of a time when Israel will finally recognize their Messiah and note their response. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. This is how Israel will respond when they finally see their Messiah. They will weep. They will afflict themselves. This is the purpose of the Day of Atonement when it will be completely realized. Well, this brings us to the last holy day, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. This was celebrated five days after the Day of Atonement. And it's also called the in-gathering. 
were tabernacles. During this feast, all of Israel would make temporary shelters made of you know, various kinds of brush, and branches, and leaves of trees. And those are described in verse 40. And they would live in them for seven days. It would be like this giant national campout. They would all go live in these booths and celebrate. And the feast reminded them that they too once lived in temporary shelters after they had been taken out of Egypt and as they waited to enter God's land of promise rest, they lived in temporary dwellings and God wanted to remind them. And so he gives them this feast. Remember that you too once dwelt in temporary dwellings before you received your rest, your land of rest. And notably... This is the only feast in which the Israelites were commanded to rejoice. Chapter 23, verse 40. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Well, how does this feast fit in with God's grand plan? Well, it's interesting that this feast will be celebrated after the return of Christ. It might actually be the only one of the feasts to be celebrated at the return of Christ. But we do know it will be celebrated because of Zechariah 14. So if you're still there in Zechariah, I left it returning. Zechariah 14. It describes the return of Christ. And then Zechariah makes this pronouncement. Verse 16, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So during this time, after Christ's return, there will still be some disobedience. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You see the repetition? The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Booths. When is it going to be celebrated in fullness? After Christ returns. So what is this ultimately pointing to? Well, remember in 2 Corinthians 5, how Paul describes, or I should say, what Paul describes as a tent. 2 Corinthians 5, 4. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, longing, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What's he talking about? What does Paul describe as a tent? Our bodies. Our bodies. Because what's going to happen after Christ's return? We're going to get our resurrected bodies. We're going to be made perfect. We're going to be free from sin. We're going to be freed from all of our defilement, all of our impurities. We're going to be freed from the effects of sin. We will actually be able to physically be in the presence of God and stand there with great joy. But God wants us to remember that that wasn't always the case. There was a time before you received this resurrected body 
When you, when you, when you dwelt in temporary dwellings. And so this feast points Israel back to their experience in Egypt as they awaited to go into their promised rest that wasn't really their ultimate promised rest. And it serves for us, points forward to the future. And after we're in that future, it will, it will serve us as we look back in the day after having our resurrected body, serving Him in His full promised rest, in His renewed Garden of Eden upon this earth. We will be able to look back and remember we too once dwelt in corrupt and temporal bodies. This is the ultimate significance for the Feast of Booths. So you guys see that there is, there is way more to come. You see where we're at in this plan of redemption? It's like we've just gotten the glass slipper, so to speak. There's way more to come. Way more to look forward to. So much more to God's plan of redemption. And this, this, this demonstrates to us the hope of the gospel is primarily future-oriented. It's primarily future-oriented. So, of course, then the natural question to ask, well, is, man, if, if, if the hope that the gospel provides is primarily for the future, how should I now live? What should, what should my life look like now if, if, those, if the promises of the gospel aren't just to make my life better now? Well, 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the coming of Christ. Set your hope fully there. Why? Because that's, that's, that's the hope that will never shatter. That's the hope that will never be lost. That's the hope that will never go away. Everything in this life, in this temporary life, our families, our careers, our, our, they will fade. They will wither and die. They will go away. There is no permanent hope now. And the gospel doesn't intend to give us permanent hope for this life. It's for the future. And if we recognize that the hope of the gospel that the gospel offers is not for an improved life now, recognize that is what frees you to live for the glory of God alone now. It frees us to truly die to ourselves. Because we're not going to be expecting life to go great. Because we don't, have, we don't assume that the, that the gospel promises a life that's great. We're waiting for it to come. It frees us to truly die to ourselves. Notice, notice Luke, Luke chapter 9. Flip it to the book of Luke. It's just an important reminder for us. Luke chapter 9. Remember what Jesus says. The words of our Lord. He loves us and he tells us this for our good. That we might have eternal hope. Verse 23. Chapter 9 verse 23. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Pay attention to verse 24. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. Because we no longer expect anything for ourselves. We're, we're content to wait. We're content 
for to wait for this promised rest. See, knowing God's grand plan enables us, it frees us to die to ourselves now. It, it enables to have genuine courage. It frees us from self-pity because, again, we're no longer expecting anything from ourselves. And so when it's taken away or when we're mocked or when we're discouraged, we go, well, yeah. We're not, we're not afraid to lose anything when we grasp this. And we're not upset when we do. Because our hope isn't in this life. And we didn't leave it here in this life. So if that's the case, that might sound a little bit despairing. What, what should we aim at now? If, 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 if our life is not to be just to, to make a name for ourselves, to make us more secure, to, 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 to have just wonderful children that the world admires. If it's not about us, what should we invest in? What should we do with our money? What should we do with our time? What should we be aiming at? What promise remains for this life if it's not, if not personal improvement? Remember what John said, Jesus said in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he's speaking of his disciples there. We're not promised an improved life, at least from the world's perspective. Yes, our life will improve because we're not bound by sin anymore. But we are promised. In fact, we're guaranteed that right here, John 12, 24, if we die to our own individual selfish ambitions, we are promised, we are guaranteed, we will bear much fruit. And you see, to bear much fruit... Much lasting fruit, fruit that will abide in heaven, storing up treasures in heaven. If we die, that is guaranteed. And true, you may not see it. You may not see it in this life. But it's guaranteed. If you die to yourself, it will be producing a harvest of righteousness that is something only God can accomplish. And so this becomes our aim, to bear fruit Not improving our lives, but to bear fruit. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. When I say we need to die to ourselves, I don't don't mean that we all just need to go out there and become martyrs. In fact, I almost mean the opposite of that. And the reason I say that is because martyrs are famous. I think if if most of us knew that we could, because we're going to die anyway, if most of us knew that we could leave this life as a martyr for Christ, and, and we would be remembered by prosperity as the, as, as the person who didn't cave and, and gave glory to God. I think most of us would take that opportunity because we'd be remembered. We, we would have a name that goes down through the centuries. Maybe we'd even be called a saint. I don't think that's what death to self actually means. I think more realistically it means we have genuine contentment in bearing with a crying baby. In working a dead-end job. Contentment knowing we may never get a raise. We may never get those improvements to our house. You might never be able to have children. 
Contentment with people thinking that you're bigoted or you're crazy or you're unloving because you actually take the word of God seriously. The world may never know your name. People will never applaud you for all the sacrifices that you made on their behalf. You will be unnoticed. You will die in obscurity. And you are good with that. That's what this hope provides. When we know there is so much more to come, we're content to lose it all now. And so maybe this is the best test of genuine faith. Do you still want to follow Christ, even if it means your life will never improve? And in fact, it may and probably will only get worse. Do you still want to follow Christ if your life only takes a nosedive? If your reputation only takes a nosedive from here on out? You see, this is why Judas abandoned Christ. He said, you know, Jesus, you're not going to give me what I thought. I'll sell you for 20 pieces of silver. He wanted the glass slipper more than he wanted the prince. But what a contrast. What a contrast with the other 11 who, according to church history, all laid down their life for their Lord, following in his footsteps. So which would you prefer? To follow Christ and a life of death or to hold on to a few temporal blessings that will soon pass. Let's pray.